0: This is Songwriter, the podcast that turns stories into songs. My name is Ben Arthur. Today, we have a brand new song from author and songwriter Warren Zanes. But first, the story that inspires the song.
1: I'm Jean Hanff korlitz I'm the author of eight novels.
0: Introducing Jean to new readers, one is tempted to mention the fact that her books are frequently turned into well-regarded television shows and movies. You might have the urge to say the names of Nicole Kidman or Hugh Grant, but Jean will have none of it.
1: The problem with citing the adaptation of fiction to the screen. I mean, we all care about it enormously. I mean, if, if we say we, we don't care, we're lying. But I've noticed recently that evidence of adaptation seems to be offered as an expression of the success of the work. And that I don't agree with. There have been so many great adaptations of not so great books and vice versa. There have been fantastic books that just didn't work on screen. So I, I question the, the isolation of this one thing as an expression of the success of the book. It is true that I've had two adaptations and I have two more in the works, including The Late Comer. I mean, I've been told that the reason my work translates well is that I, I like plot and I... I'm not content to leave characters sort of half-formed on the page, but that's a literary thing, and, you know, those would be my responsibilities, you know, whether we ever saw them on a screen or not. I'm doing the same job that I've been trying to do for 25 years, and the fact that people have begun to notice the appeal of that work for adaptations is very exciting to me, but it is not my job. Most plots, you, you you sit down for the movie, and five minutes in, you know exactly what's going to happen, and it's no fun. It's the same with books. It's very, very difficult to surprise me, and I'm not going to let go of a novel that I'm writing unless I feel that I've done that, uh, and unless I feel that I'm I have a good chance of surprising my readers. So the fact that nobody knew where to put me in the bookstore and that people who thought of me as a thriller writer— and and didn't wanna go into the literary section or vice versa, did not follow me from book to book, which is a polite way of saying I had a terrible sales record. Um, You know, perhaps now in the fullness of time, these are the very things that are attractive to people who wanna adapt the work for screen, that it is literary, that, you know, it does care about the characters, but those plot twists are there too. was working on The Latecomer in 2018, 2019, at which time my editor uh, left my publisher to go and form her own imprint at a different publisher. This is a common publishing event known as being orphaned when your editor leaves before your book comes out and it usually is the, 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 the sign of death <laughs> for the book and my case was no exception. Um, the novel was called The Devil in Webster and it was published and nobody read it. So I had this very poor sales record, yet the latest of very poor sales records and things did not look good for this book I was writing, The Latecomer, but I did have this HBO show in development, and so I thought, well, that'll be a good thing, and maybe they won't want to let me go because Nicole Kidman, Hugh Grant. But in fact, they did turn down The Latecomer, and it it wasn't even close, according to the message that was sent to me by my agent. So, um, not feeling so great about the book but I then submitted it to my editor at her new publication at her new uh, publishing company and she also turned it down although with a much nicer uh, tone and what she said was that you know, it was going to be great, but it wasn't there yet. And I needed to rewrite it. And I did that. I spent the fall of 2019 rewriting the book and I submitted it again in January. I was not a happy camper when I went in for another postmortem of another rejection. And in that conversation, I heard myself kind of out of nowhere pitching a different book to my editor. It was a, a story about a failed writer who is teaching in an MFA program and has this terrible student and the student has a brilliant idea and after the student dies without writing his brilliant book, the failed writer appropriates his story. My editor in a in a great show of faith in me bought both books. She bought this book that didn't exist and the book that she had just rejected and she said to me that I should put aside the latecomer because I was very stuck in it and uh, just kind of exhausted by it and write that other story. And that is what I did um, during the first months of the pandemic. I wrote the plot and it, it took four months to write in total uh, contrast to the book i had been struggling with. And it, it needed very little revision and it was published the next year and it uh, really did change everything. Just everything about that book was just magical. Then I went back to The Latecomer, and because I'd had this experience of putting it down and writing this whole other book, I had a fresh perspective on it, and I could see much more clearly what was wrong and how to fix it. And The Latecomer, as it exists now in the world, is very much, it's quite a different book than the one that was rejected several times. (laughs) But more to the point, it's the book that I really wanted to write. And it's odd that the latecomer, you know, which was always called the latecomer, became the latecomer in terms of when it was finally completed.
0: The latecomer is a multi-generational and multifaceted look at a family as they pass through the last decades of the 20th century. The story is fierce and sweet and heartbreaking, and Jean told me that she was influenced in no small part by a writer who she considers the master of this form
1: the book that i had in the back of my mind as i was writing was the world according to garp by john irving it's so interesting because whenever i mention garp at a, a talk or a QA or anything like that the same thing always happens there is this audible sigh in the room people go oh, like this and and this is such an incredible compliment to any writer i mean i i I, I don't know if John Irving is really cognizant of the impact of that novel so many years later, but after decades, decades after having read that book, people are still sighing with the beauty and the, the, the sweetness of it.
0: This is Jean Hamf Corlitz reading an excerpt from the first chapter of The Latecomer.
1: Mom had a way of obfuscating when anyone asked how she and our father first met. Mainly, she said, it was at a wedding in Oak Bluffs, to which she'd been brought as a date by the closeted brother of the groom. And there was her future husband, an usher for one of his fraternity brothers. Both factoids were perfectly true, though the broader assertion was also utterly false. Our parents had met once before under, frankly, terrible circumstances. And this is why we all eventually understood how impossible it was for her to be truthful. It's supposed to be a happy question. Where did you two meet? With a happy answer, opening out to a lifetime of companionship, consequence, and progeny. In our case, lots of progeny. But when that moment dovetails with the very worst event in a young person's life, who wouldn't wish to spare him? And the person innocently asking the question, and as it happened, our mother herself. The shock, the glare of approval, the horror of it all. The bald fact was that our parents met in central New Jersey in a conservative synagogue that looked like a brutalist government building somewhere in the Eastern Block. The synagogue was Beth Jacob of Hamilton Township, and the terrible occasion was the funeral of a 19-year-old girl named Mandy Bernstein, who had died four days earlier in a car driven by her boyfriend, our father, Sallow Oppenheimer. Mandy was, by every account, a vibrant young person with a glowing white smile and long dark hair, the eldest child and pride of her family, the Bernsteins of Lawrenceville, New Jersey, and Newton, Massachusetts. A Cornell sophomore and likely psychology major, and as far as she herself was concerned, the joyfully intended future life partner of Sallow Oppenheimer. Mandy Bernstein was one of two Cornell students who'd perished in the accident, the other being Sallow's friend and fraternity brother, Daniel Abraham, a kind boy who was on a first or possibly second date with the other person in the back seat. That person was still hospitalized in Ithaca. Sallow alone had walked away from the wreck. Even then, nobody blamed him. Nobody. Even in those early days in the grief and rage of the Abraham and Bernstein families and the many friends of the two young people who were suddenly horribly not there. It was somehow held by all present in the synagogue and the following week at the E. Bernheim and Sons Funeral Chapel in Newark, New Jersey, where Daniel Abraham would be memorialized, that cello, Oppenheimer's brand new Laredo had been traveling at an eminently reasonable speed down a perfectly respectable road when it hit a loose rock and abruptly, incomprehensibly flipped, landing on its roof half on and half off the road. It was, in other words, at least in those houses of God, as if the hand of God itself had picked up that vehicle and dropped it back to earth. Who could explain the mystery? Who could make comprehensible the loss? Not sallow, that was certain. He sat in the second row at his girlfriend's funeral service, four stitches in his scalp and an ace bandage, not even a cast on his left wrist. Out of his mind was shock and guilt, barely taking in the stream of Mandy's cousins and high school students and the contingent of Bernsteins who'd made Aliyah a few years earlier, but were now appallingly here in Hamilton Township, weeping and looking at him, but still not blaming him. In the aftermath, he'd had no recollection of the rock in the road, or the sickening arc through the air, bright winter sun streaming directly into his eyes. His only impressions would be the shriek of crushing metal, that absurd sardine tin roof crumpling on impact, and the open-mouthed surprise of Mandy Bernstein, whose sweet, freckled, dusted nose he had thought adorable instantly the first time he saw her at a reception for new Jewish freshmen. Mandy was made of joy, perpetually on the verge of laughter. Close to her parents and younger sisters back in New Jersey, if she wasn't in her room, she was likely in the phone booth down the corridor in Balch Hall, coaxing Lisa or Cynthia through some high school social maze or perceived parental injustice. And to her cousins in Newton, the mothership of the Bernstein family. She liked to wear her hair in a high ponytail, sometimes with a red bandana wrapped around it, a fashion she'd picked up on a kibbutz she'd visited one summer during high school, and she rotated three pairs of well-loved bell-bottoms that she was perpetually embroidering. Butterflies, rainbows, a rendering of the family poodle Poochkin in lavender. By December of their freshman year, they were dating, which basically meant that Sallow took her out to football games and walked her home to her dorm when the library closed closed. They sampled the brand new and exotic Moosewood restaurant downtown for something called Tofu and went for numerous hot truck runs on the way back to their North Campus dorms. Mandy was fond of the pizza subs. He'd brought her home only once when she was visiting the city to interview for a summer internship with UJA, an internship she would indeed be offered in a letter that arrived one week after the accident. That introduction had gone well, despite the Bernsteins' obvious lack of our crowdliness and despite the fact that Zelda Oppenheimer plainly harbored hopes of a sax, a schiff, or even a warbird for her only son. Mandy was simply that delightful, that charming and powerfully kind, and that in love, pure, clear, and very obvious love with Sallow Oppenheimer. She loved his brain and his manners and his spindly body, tall and frail, devoid of musculature. She loved a goodness she saw in him which Sallow quite honestly had never pretended to see in himself. It was not precisely true that she made him wish to be a better man. It was more true that she made him wish he wished to be a better man. At the time, that felt like enough. He hadn't asked her to marry him. They weren't engaged though later he was deliberately vague on this issue because he knew it would make a big difference to Mandy's parents. The distance between she was a wonderful girl, someone any guy would have been lucky to date, and she was the love of my life, and I was on the point of proposing to her felt vast, and our father opted correctly to let her parents believe whatever might help them bear the pain. That awful winter and spring for the next And for the next several years, he let the Bernsteins enfold them into their grief as Mandy's intended future fiancé, husband, and father of the children she would never have. Then he married Joanna Hirsch, their daughter's Lawrence high schoolmate, and all contact abruptly ceased. Mandy Bernstein had been Joanna's big sister, not literally, but within the local chapter of the Bene B'rith girls. This was a position she had taken seriously— leaving surprise gift baskets, bagels and cream cheese, chocolate chip cookies on the, on the doorstep of the Hirsch home when she knew Johanna was studying for a test, and showing up to help out on Johanna's service projects, like the roadside car wash to benefit the Hebrew Nursing Home Recreation Fund, or the friendship letters to children in Israel. The sisters had all been randomly assigned, but Johanna was ecstatic to find she'd been paired with the popular and pretty Mandy Bernstein. Mandy Bernstein person she would not have dared solicit for friendship in the halls of their teeming New Jersey high school, where a year's difference in age meant everything, and perceived deficits in looks, wealth, and cool meant everything else. Johanna was one of dozens of young women at the funeral that day, each and every one of them sincerely, personally, in mourning. The identity of the young man with the bandaged wrist had been freely exchanged among them, and it would be fair to say that Sallow Oppenheimer was the object of a certain romantic fascination. How must he feel, so young himself and already responsible for the deaths of two others just as young? How would he survive the loss of his own beloved Mandy, this glowing, clever Ivy League girl, the jewel of her family, school, and town, Possibly Johanna was not the only person in the jammed pews of Temple Beth Jacob wondering what kind of person it might ultimately take to draw this devastated Sallow Oppenheimer from his eternal vortex of guilt and pain. Possibly she was not the only one imagining the great love and compassion necessary to bring Sallow Oppenheimer back to life. Our mother wasn't remarkable like Mandy Bernstein. She was an ordinary girl from a family so average and undistinguished that she cringed at their inadequacies and then again at her own disloyalty. Between the unacknowledged star that was Debbie and the perpetual fuck up that was their younger brother Bobby, our mother ducked through adolescence in a furtive attempt not to be noticed. Johanna was an average student, a volleyball team member who mainly sat and watched, and a non-mixer in either of the two cliques that dominated her high school, These were known as the beautifuls and the weirdos. She kept company with a half dozen or so girls from back in elementary school, was generally fearful around boys, and gave her parents not one reason to worry about or otherwise pay attention to her. When she was 16, she joined the B'nai B'rith girls at the suggestion of her sister Debbie, who was about to leave home and who worried Johanna would simply disappear once she'd gone that was when the wondrous Mandy Bernstein, not only a beautiful but also a 12th grader, had materialized to sprinkle her magic fairy dust over Johanna Hirsch. Months later, Mandy was gone, off to Cornell. A year after that, she was gone for good. I'm very sorry, said Johanna to Sallow Oppenheimer that day after the service had ended. She was one of perhaps 40 young women to approach him and extend her hand and say these exact words And there was no reason for him to remember her. And in fact, he did not remember her, though that had less to do with Johanna's ordinariness than with the shrieking voice in our father's head all through the service and burial and reception. Afterwards, she went in one of the cars to the cemetery and watched Mandy's broken parents and sisters throw red clay on the coffin and Sallow Oppenheimer throw red clay on the coffin. And by the time she reached the open grave, there was little left to throw. Afterwards, Salo Oppenheimer had been taken away by a dowdy, dignified couple in a Lincoln town car, and Johanna would not see him again for several years until the Rudnitsky wedding in Oak Bluffs. By then, Johanna was a rising sophomore at Skidmore, not that her heart was in either her nominal major, sociology, or anything else of an educational nature. She also didn't like Saratoga, which was full of dancers and horse people in the summer and brutally cold the rest of the time, And the series of crushes she developed on boys at the college always ended in some variation of, it isn't you, it's me, usually delivered over mugs of terrible beer in one of the town taverns. If you'd asked Johanna Hirsch what in the whole wide world she cared about, she'd have been hard-pressed to come up with anything, not even, or perhaps especially not, herself. Basically, she was drifting, as she had always drifted once in the gully of her family and now in the gully of her college experience, until suddenly she wasn't. It was one of those, it isn't you, it's me, young man who invited her to his brother's wedding on Martha's Vineyard. He did not explain that our mother's role would be that of a beard. Perhaps he thought he didn't need to, but he did warn her that the likelihood of family meltdown over the course of the wedding weekend was high, His brother was marrying, and this was his parents' word, he insisted, not his, a schwarze. In other words, and his mother had been on the verge of hysteria all spring. In other words, no, this would not be an opportune moment to turn up without an unobjectionable female date. In other other words, it would also not be the time to make any grand announcements about his own clarifying life choices. Johanna was game. She had never been to the famous island where, a few years earlier, that ghastly accident had occurred with the young senator and his aide, and she was curious about the family of her nominal date, who would call a black person a Schwarza, and the brother who was brave enough or perhaps antagonistic enough to marry someone so certain to provoke them. To be completely fair, she'd taken the opportunity to share the relevant detail with her own mother, who'd reacted pretty much the same way as Joshua Radnitsky's mother had— When they arrived on the island before the wedding, she was fairly swiftly deposited with the bridesmaids. Eight women of Spellman, plus Wendy Rudnitsky, the only sister of Joshua, and Michael the groom. This was hugely uncomfortable as far as Johanna was concerned, not because she was white. The bride and bridesmaids were gracious and welcoming. But because the women were mostly familiar and affectionate with one another, while her own connection to the event was so very tangential... She tried to at least peel off for the rehearsal dinner, but they insisted on bringing her along to the inn at Lambert's Cove, and that was the place she recognized Salo Oppenheimer, a person she had sometimes thought of in the years since that terrible funeral. After the toast, as the older family members began to drift off and only the bride and groom and their friends remained chatting around a long table, she saw him outside, leaning on the porch railing with a glass of champagne. Our mother went to him and reintroduced herself, extending for the second time her hand. I'm sorry to have to tell you where we met before, she said. Our father turned to look at her. Oh, he said after a moment, Daniel or Mandy? Daniel must have been the other one, she realized, the friend. Mandy, I knew her. She was such a good person, said Sallow. Yes, I'm Johanna. I'm here with Michael's brother, Joshua. Oh, Sallow said, I thought Joshua was homosexual. Incredibly, this was when the meaning of it isn't you, it's me finally reached her. We're just friends, our mother said, having already expunged whatever notions she'd held, and let's face it, till that instant maintained for the brother of the groom. From this moment forward, it was all going to be about our father. And the great purpose of her life would be to love him enough to relieve him of his great burden and to free him from that one terrible shard of time in which he was so unfairly trapped and to salve at last that wound of his, that one that wouldn't heal. It didn't occur to her and wouldn't for years that she wasn't the one, the only one, who'd ever be capable of doing that.
0: And now for the song written in response by an old friend of Jean's.
1: I know Warren because Warren is in a band called Rogue Oliphant, which is a band that is centered by the lyrics of Paul Muldoon, to whom I have been married for 36 years. Paul had always had a great passion for rock and roll. Uh, but he's not a musician. But when he met uh, Warren Zevon in the late 90s and collaborated with him on a couple of songs, it kind of opened this door of perception you might say, Uh, and he began to write lyrics and over the years has had a number of bands and Rogue Oliphant is the most recent and the greatest of all. It's comprised of a kind of gathering of musicians who have played with everybody from the Pogues to Bob Dylan to, in Warren's case, the Del Fuegos. Warren is a great songwriter and he's a great singer and he's a super fun guy and he's just a, a lovely, lovely person. You know, I believe in adaptation. I believe that adaptation is central to everything that any artist does at any time, whether they're aware of it or not. You know, it's one thing to have a story come from another story come from another story, that's, that's, the, that's the river I'm wading in. But to go from genre to genre, it, especially when it involves something that I personally can't do, which is anything connected to music, it's really exciting.
2: My name's Warren Zanes and I am a writer and a musician and a professor. I know Jean and her husband Paul have written a lot of songs with Paul and that's been a pretty remarkable experience and came to know Jean as you know fellow theater parents and then you know during Rogue Oliphant gigs and uh, so they've got a special place in my heart. My trajectory first stop was playing in a rock and roll band so when everyone else was getting their bachelor's degree, I was getting a different kind of bachelor's degree, playing in my brother's band, the Del Fuego's. And along the way, uh, Tom Petty became a part of our lives. We were so vocal about our admiration for Petty that eventually he just had to reach out to us and say, stop talking about me. He didn't say that. He uh, invited us out to his house. So... Got to know him. He sang on one of our records. Then he took us out on a three-month tour. And then I didn't see, hear from him for 10 years because I quit my brother's band, went back to school. Tom read a book I wrote in the thirty-three and third series on Dusty Springfield's Dusty in Memphis and said, hey, I want to have dinner with you next time you're in Los Angeles. And we had dinner, and, and he said, uh, I can't generally pinpoint where songs come from but I wrote one that came from reading your book I want you to come back to the house and hear it So after coming back into Tom Petty's world for a second time around I started, you know, doing some writing for them. Did some liner notes. Uh, I edited a coffee table book that went along with Peter Bogdanovich's "Running Down a Dream" documentary. And eventually, it led to, you know, Tom approached me about writing a bio. I didn't anticipate it, uh, but he really he let me in, gave me very complete access. And we had this history; like he knew me when I was a teenager with you know one of my front teeth was chipped in half for like years he knew that version of me he entrusted me with something that he didn't necessarily have to entrust me with i wasn't coming in with a resume that said your next stop is writing tom petty's biography so he took a he took a chance on me and you know i i like to think it was the right one getting to know tom petty i feel like it's it is Uh, continuous with the fabric of my work. There's a lot of talking to songwriters. I feel like these conversations about where songs come from and why they come when they come, I will never tire of those conversations because everyone is different and it really puts me so in touch with the, the more mystical side of it all. You cannot summon a song. It made a difference that I had been on stage, that I had been in the studio. It gave me an experiential basis from which to talk to songwriters and performers that has helped uh, more than I can tell you. So I really felt it in the Tom Petty Project but I felt it again doing the books with Garth Brooks. And when I worked on the b- book about Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska, I felt it again. I think the way that musicians talk to and deal with other musicians tends to involve quite a bit of humility because it's, you know, it's not all hitting home runs. So anybody who's done it for a while, they've had dry periods, they've had moments where they make what they think is their best work, and the world tells them, no, in fact, it's not. Put yourself out there, you're going to take a bit of a beating. And so I think when musicians approach other musicians, they can get a whiff of some of that. Like, you've tasted both sides, the disappointment and the glories, and you know the truth of it is somewhere between those two, and so I'm going to just be my plain self to you. Most of the songwriters that I've talked to have had lots of experiences where they really think the one they just wrote is gonna be their last. And that's a you know, that's a tough place to live, but boy, it makes you respect the song when it comes. Who really sits and looks at their catalog and goes, Whoa, what a wealth? I think most of them are going, man, I hope another. I was just talking to a songwriter who got a you know a Garth Brooks cut, which is a big deal, obviously, but not a lot been happening for the years before that. And you know they went to Garth and said, "I just got to tell you that you saved my life." And Garth was like, "No, no, no. What they meant, I think, was, when I'm writing, I feel most fully alive. And when you cut my song, uh, I got back to writing, and I got back to feeling fully alive. Well, I, I came in with an admiration for Gene as a writer, as, as a person and, and as a writer. I like the, that feel of the generational epic. In a way, it's a book that begs a song cycle, but I knew I was writing one song. So I wanted to like find, you know, rather than go in at the scene level, I wanted to come in at more the theme level. Because there's that trauma that gets passed with the accident, that really interested me. A, a trauma doesn't need to be passed, you know, as this verbal thing. It's actually more powerful when it's a secret. It does more to imprint the psyche of the next generation, and, the, and, and it skips generations sometimes. But when it's a secret, that's when it really lays down its kind of deadly laws. And I, when I saw that happening in the book, I was like, you know, that's, that's where I want to go. You know, because this, this accident is going to be everybody's accident. I joined my brother's band. I was 17, he was 21. That four year gap gave him all kinds of power. I was a 17 year old kid who wanted to do something with his creative juice and it wasn't the place for me. And it, but I had to go through the experience to find that out. And I, you know, it hurt so much to go, wait, this really isn't my band. It's like we, we played it off as we're a band. We weren't, it was like we were like much more like a backing band to my brother. But we presented differently to the world, and I went out going, I've been part of uh, an untruth. Most bands have power centers. They, they shout democracy, but that's not how they function. honestly think the band would have been better if I had a shot. And, you know, I say that not from a place of hurt feelings because I'm too old. I made my brother go to therapy with me to really, you know, years after to really talk it out because I was I was hurting, you know. it's The sibling stuff goes deep. And I, I was like, I, I got to process some of this with you in the room. And he did it, to his credit. Well, I didn't go away, you know, kicking up my heels, but I heard some things in those sessions that I needed to hear. Bands are complicated beings. Sibling relationships are complicated things. Put the two of them together, and it's going to be fun to watch if you're in the audience. As we see in Gene's book, Families are so complicated, and there's so much hurt, and there's so much repression, and there's so many secrets. That's what bands are like. They really are. The hurt is, is really deep. And I can't say I've encountered a band that I like that doesn't have some deep hurt.
0: Warren Zanes with his song, The Aftermath of the Accident.
3: In Brooklyn Heights, the jewels they see are the downtown lights. In Brooklyn schools, at least the private ones, they can bend the rules for the well
0: That was The Aftermath of the Accident by Warren Zanes. Special thanks to The Porch in Harlem for hosting the live event with Warren and Jean. <music> the next episode features an excerpt from Featherhood by Charlie Gilmore and a song written in response by Matsudiso. Songwriter is 100% independently produced. If you want to support the artist and the producer who makes it, please consider getting a premium subscription from Apple Podcasts. Five-star reviews and kind words online or in person are always appreciated as well. You can get early access to Songwriter at Paste. Just go to pastemagazine.com and search for Ben Arthur. And while you're there, check out the Paste podcast, or get it wherever you get yours. Finally, thanks, as always, to Rob Reinhardt and Acoustic Cafe.